Excellent choice of song. Out of all the songs that graduating seniors could sing for us, to have that be the song that God had laid on their heart, Christ is enough, and they've decided to follow him. And as I look at each one of these young people walking off the platform, what I know of them is those weren't just words. They were, that was their heart that they were expressing. So how great is that? Amen. Well, how about if I release the kids through grade four? And the rest of us will look at Colossians chapter one. Colossians chapter one. Do we need to take an offering today? Wasn't on my list. <laughs> Come on up, guys. I know you want to do this. So I'm going to pray for, the, uh, pray for the teens, and then we'll go ahead and take an offering. You can tell how concerned I am about this, right? You know? I mean, it's amazing. If I could just for a moment say I, I'm amazed by what God does through you when it comes to this. As a church, you, you are so generous, and what you do... Sid, Andrea, the flags around all the different people who have been supported and sent out. It's an amazing thing. It really is. And it's because you are faithful stewards with what God's given you. And not just the finances. You're faithful in your service. You're faithful in your love for him. And so, Lord God, I thank you for these people. And I pray you're blessed as you look down, as we take a moment to offer back to you from all that you've given to us, Lord. I pray that, uh, that you would be blessed because you see the generosity of each of these in the room, each giving differently. And I pray as the bag comes by that it would be a reminder that there's a moment when we can offer something back to you. Thank you for giving the opportunity to do that. Thank you for allowing us to get a glimpse into the heart of the teens of our church this morning. I thank you for that as well. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, God's timing's perfect, isn't it? So we'll go with that. Colossians chapter 1, and uh, we'll be looking at that together again today. And uh, as I was thinking about graduation weekend, and, and as I considered what, what could I have to say to the graduates, and it's really interesting that this particular passage of Scripture we're looking at, uh, Colossians 5, 1, 15 through 20, talks about the supremacy of Christ. So just the songs that they sang to us speak to that. But I was thinking about when I graduated from high school and uh, all the things that were going on in my heart and in my mind at that moment in time. Do you remember that? For some of you, you have your diplomas chiseled in stone or whatever, <laughs> you know, but, uh, you know, there were no cell phones. There were no, you know, I mean, when, when you stop to think about it. But I remember when I graduated, and in high school, I had felt the call to go into ministry. Uh, I went into ministry, though, actually, uh, about 12 years ago. Prior to that, I had better plans. So I felt the call into ministry in high school, but the night of graduation, because I had gotten a job and considered some other things, I, I thought of better plans I had for my life than the plans God had for my life. Have any of you thought that you have better plans for your life than God has for your life? Have any of you had that work out well for you? 
So, age 19, I got married. Graduates, you know, think about that. Age 19, we got married. It was amazing. We weren't going to have any kids for five years. But we had all of our kids in the first four years. <laughs> Karen could not keep her hands off of me. I have the microphone and that's the way I remember it. <laughs> oh boy, I've got to pay for that one. Um, but life stepped in and I had great plans and things that I was going to do and church and Jesus fit into that along the way at my convenience and the way that I wanted it to happen. And then, October 4th, 1998, something amazing happened. And Jesus stepped into my life in a powerful way. Not because I deserved it, but because he wasn't done with me yet. And that night was the first night ever that I read Scripture, and Scripture read me. It's a big difference. I, I had grown up in a great home. I had memorized the word. I had read the word. I knew all the verses to say. I knew when to sit in church, when to stand in church. I knew how to look. I knew how to play the part. I had it all down. But inside me was this deep longing. Isn't there something more to this? And it was when, when Scripture read me that my life changed. And so I have a very high regard for Scripture. And so as I step into this interim period, my desire in my heart is to, to guide you as much as I can to have a passion for the Word of God, to, to love the Word of God and to have it come alive for you. Because when you stop and allow the Word of God to read you, your life changes. And sometimes... Sometimes it's amazing because Scripture will be reading you and it feels so good at that moment in time. There's other times when Scripture reads you and it's God putting his finger on something in your life that needs to change. And that doesn't feel so good until you change that thing. And then you're overwhelmed with yet again a sense of the joy of being in his presence. So, so many times I think back to the, to the things I did in those 25 years. And I think of Paul writing this letter to the church in Colossae. And he talked about how he had persecuted the church. And in many ways, those 25 years when I was playing around with my relationship with Christ, it was persecuting the church. I wasn't building it up. So, we make the most of every opportunity. We don't live condemned in the past. We live convicted for the future. And so as I read this letter to, Colossi to the Colossians, my heart stirs as I, as I open it for you. And the prayers that I read become prayers that I read for you. 
and the things that Paul teaches, I long to learn so that I can share them with you, so that we can become part of this movement of God that could change this world. So the letters that live that we're looking at this summer, God's timeless message to the early church, the gospel, can change our lives. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God. Who is he? Let's go back a couple of verses. It's the, the passage we looked at last week. For he rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of God. We're talking about the Son he loves here, Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth, in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. So God, this is your word. And we're gonna look at it today, but I pray, Lord, that you'd have it Read us. Change us, Lord, as we, as we come into the place where we look at this so that we can leave here more the men and women that you've designed for us to be. And I pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. So, letters that live. The gospel's the way of reconciliation. That's what we're looking at today. And the big idea is, is that reconciliation of all things comes through Christ who is supreme over all. So the reconciliation of all things comes through Christ because he's supreme over all. First, we see that he's supreme over all creation. God is, Jesus is supreme over all creation. I found something I'd like to read for you. As, as we think about this church in Colossae, Paul writes, and, and you'll know as we looked at this past couple of weeks, first he thanks God for all that he sees in them. And all that God's doing because of the gospel, that it's bearing fruit, that it's growing, and that they've come to know Jesus as their Savior. And then he begins to pray for them, that they will be strengthened in that, that they will give endurance and patience, and, and they'll be strengthened in their knowledge of who God is. And then Paul moves right from a prayer into teaching. Okay, he doesn't even say amen. <laughs> he just goes. He says, I pray this, Christ is. And he wants them to understand, first and foremost, that Christ is supreme. Because the gospel is this, that Jesus came, he lived, he died, he was buried, he rose again on the third day, and seated at the right hand of God the Father now. That's the gospel. It's all about Christ. So without a proper understanding of Christ, you cannot have a proper understanding of the gospel. And he knew that this church in Colossae, just like every church, was going to face situations where, where people would come and say that Jesus isn't enough that you need more. And the church in Colossae was going to face that as well. And that's why this song that these guys sang for us, Christ is enough for us, is so important. But what is it about Christ that makes him enough? And who is Jesus? 
Do you remember reading perhaps in Matthew 16 where, where Jesus goes to, to, Peter, to Peter and it's in Caesarea Philippi and we've been there and it's an interesting place to ask that question, isn't it? Because there's all these other temples and all these other gods that are worshipped there. And the question's asked, Peter, who, who do you say that I am? And Peter said, you're the Christ. And Jesus says, blessed are you because you didn't figure that out on your own. The Father made it known to you. See, Jesus is the Christ. And that question, who do you say that Jesus is, is very important. And so our teaching is going to look at that. But this, this article that I found is really powerful because maybe somewhere in one of these, you'll hear your answer of who you think Christ is. The greatness of God is most clearly displayed in his Son. And the glory of the gospel is only made evident in the Son. That's why Jesus' question to his disciples, who do you say that I am, is so important. The question is doubly crucial in our day because no one is as popular in the United States as Jesus. And not every Jesus is the real Jesus. And that's important because only the real Jesus can save and bring reconciliation. So, who are these different Jesuses? Well, there's the Republican Jesus, who's against tax increases and activist judges. He's for family values and owning firearms. And there's the Democrat Jesus, who's against Wall Street and Walmart. He's for reducing our carbon footprint and for printing money. And there's therapist Jesus, who helps us cope with life's problems, heals our past, tells us how valuable we are, and not to be so hard on ourselves. And there's Starbucks Jesus, who drinks fair trade coffee, loves spiritual conversation, drives a hybrid, and goes to film festivals. And <clears throat> see, where this plays out is if you hear people say, well, you know, I don't think God's like that. I think God is loving like this. I think God, okay, those are the Jesuses that are being defined here. There's open-minded Jesus who loves everyone all the time, no matter what, except for people who are not as open-minded as you. <laughs> There's touchdown Jesus, who helps athletes run faster, jump higher than non-Christians, and determines the outcomes of Super Bowls. <laughs> There's martyr Jesus, a good man who died a cruel death so we can feel sorry for him. There's gentle Jesus, who is meek and mild, high cheekbones, flowing hair, and walks around barefoot, wearing a white sash while looking very German. <laughs> There's hippie Jesus, who teaches everyone to give peace a chance, imagines a world without religion, and helps remember that all you need is love. There's yuppie Jesus, who encourages us to reach our full potential, reach for the stars, and buy a boat. See, and, and the truth is, each, each one of these has a following. And, and it's influenced our understanding of Jesus negatively. There's spirituality Jesus, who hates religion, churches, pastors, priests, and doctrine, and would rather have people out in nature finding the God within while listening ambiguously to spiritual music. There's platitude Jesus, good for Christmas specials, greeting cards, bad sermons inspiring people to believe in themselves. 
Revolutionary Jesus who teaches us to rebel against the status quo, stick it to the man and blame things on the system. Guru Jesus, a wise, inspirational teacher who believes in you and helps you find your center. Boyfriend Jesus, who wraps his arms around us as we sing about his intoxicating love in our secret place. Good example, Jesus, who shows you how to help people change the planet and become a better you. And then there's Jesus Christ, the son of the living God, not just another prophet, not just another rabbi, not just another wonder worker. He was the one that we've been waiting for, the son of David and Abraham's chosen seed, the one to deliver us from captivity, the goal of the Mosaic law. Yahweh in the flesh, the one to establish God's reign and rule, the one to heal the sick, give sight to the blind, freedom to the prisoners, and proclaim good news to the poor. The Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. This Jesus was the creator of earth and the beginning of a new creation. He embodied the covenant, fulfilled the commandments, reversed the curse. This Jesus is the Christ who God spoke of to the serpent. The Christ prefigured to Noah in the flood. The Christ promised to Abraham. The Christ prophesied through Balaam before the Moabites. The Christ guaranteed to Moses before he died. The Christ promised to David when he was king. The Christ revealed to Isaiah as the suffering servant. The Christ predicted through the prophets and prepared for through John the Baptist. Amen? Amen. This Christ is not a reflection of the current mood or the projection of our own desires. He is our Lord and our God. He's the Father, Son, the Savior of the world, substitute for our sins, more loving, more holy, and more wonderfully terrifying than anything we could imagine. Who do you say Jesus is? Right? And so many times I think we find ourselves in all of the the pretend Jesuses. And Satan loves to get us doing that and not realizing who Jesus really is. And could I urge us to, as we read the text today, say, what part of Jesus have I been wrong about? And what part do I need to take hold of? Because he is the Messiah. And again, as we look at this, these letters to the, to the early churches, they're living with, their, with a foot in each world. They've got this old covenant that they were brought up in. And it's like, wow, what do I do with this now that Christ has come in? And then there's this like, wow, Christ has come in. Look what I can do with this. And so it's, it's this unfolding that helps us understand the fulfilling of the Old Testament. And so these letters are so critical and so crucial for us to understand and to grab hold of. Because this high Christology piece that's here and this passage that we're looking at today is thought of as a cosmic hymn, that it was probably a hymn that was sung by the early church, possibly just celebrating this amazing truth that Christ is God, which would have been revolutionary to them. Because the Messiah was slain, and how does that make sense? So, who is Christ to you? Well, reconciliation of all things comes through Christ because he's supreme over all. First, Christ is supreme over all creation. See it there in verses 15 through 17. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. And and by him, all things were created, things in heaven and earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones or powers, rules or authority, all things were created by him and for him. 
So it's this idea that, that he's supreme over all of creation. And, and it's so significant that this follows what Paul just prayed for them. That he rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. And in this, we get a glimpse of the beauty and the glory of the gospel. Because the gospel has truth in this, is that it's personal. It's personal. Jesus came and lived and died and was buried and rose again so that your sin could be atoned for and there could be reconciliation for you with God and you could have a personal relationship with the God who created you. And that's a huge part of the gospel, but it's part of the gospel. The second part is that that same Christ who came and hung on the cross was not just your king, he was the king of the universe. And the king of all creation because he was supreme over all creation and still is because it was all created by him. And so he's supreme over it because he is the image of the invisible God. John 1.18 tells us this. Turn back to it. Read it to you exactly here. You may want to mark it in your copy. No one has ever seen God, but God the one and only who's at the Father's side has made him known. No one has ever seen God. In, Tim, in 2 Timothy, Paul writes this, God, the blessed and only ruler, the king of kings and lord of lords, who alone is immortal, who lives in unapproachable light, who no one has seen or can see, to him be honor and might forever. See, God is, is not able to be seen in his magnificence and in his awesomeness. He is not able to be seen unless... He chooses to reveal himself, which is what he does in Christ. In Christ, God makes himself visible. And so the image is not something that looks like God. It is the exact representation of God because he is God. Now, we are made in the image of God, but we are not the image of God. Christ is. Christ has always been and always existed he was firstborn over all creation, our text tells us. He was before all things. He's supreme over all things. He wasn't created. He's the son positionally. He's not the son in that he was born. It's huge to remember. Christ was always. He is God. And he's supreme over all that he's created. And it goes on to say that by him all things were created. Now as we look at these verses and trying to take the original language and put it into our language, at times that interpretation process can be difficult. And it can be hard for us to understand exactly what God's trying to say here. And that's okay. We can wrestle with that. God, God's okay with that. But remember that for Paul, it's so important, this idea of being in Christ. We've looked at that several times, and if you've been looking through the letter at Colossians at all, look and note how many times after this passage, Christ starts to be mentioned because of how supreme he is and how important it is to be in Christ. Because at the end of the day, all that matters when you die is, are you in Christ? At the end of the day, with the, with the things you're going through in life, are you in Christ? And so being in Christ for Paul is, is huge. And so this, this verse, actually, as we look at it, would, would translate better, I believe, if we were to understand that in Christ all things were created, through Christ all things were created, and for Christ all things were created. In, through, and for. 
It's all about Christ. Everything is for him. See, you were created for him. And as soon as we grab hold of that and stop living for us and start living for him, then all of a sudden we start to, to take on that which we've been created for. Right? Now, a pipe wrench is a great tool. And it's been created for taking pipes apart. If you use that as a finish hammer, it doesn't work out so good. It wasn't created for that. Now it can still pull it off, but it's going to make a mess. Get it? See, so, so we've been created in Christ, through Christ, and for Christ. And not just us, everything that has been created, Christ created. That's Jesus. And in him, all things hold together. Oh, man. Every electron that goes around whatever it is that it goes around. Uh, what is it? Nucleus? Proton? I don't know. Does it matter? It doesn't. It does to him, but he takes care of it. Every electron, he holds those all into place. Every sun is there. Every star is there. And it's right where it's supposed to be because he determines where it is. Merle, you're not floating out of your chair. You know why? Jesus is holding you down. You say, that's gravity. That's Jesus. You see, that's it. It's all Jesus. Jesus is holding all things together. Amen? Right? And this is like, this is Christ. And you bear his name if you're a Christian. Wow. It's okay. How is your life impacted by this truth that Christ is supreme over everything? How is your life impacted by that? Or is it just like, I got Jesus, you know? I love the fact that Jesus is my friend. I love that. But I love more the fact that he's supreme over everything. Because it makes me appreciate the fact that he would choose to be my friend a lot more valuable. Second, we see that Christ is supreme over the church. Remember, we're seeing that the reconciliation of all things comes through Christ because he's supreme over all. First, he's supreme over creation. Second, he's supreme over the church. And we find that in verse 18. And he is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. So he's the head of the body, which is the church. I love that Paul uses this analogy for the church, being the body. You know, and we, we, can, we can understand that, okay? You got a hip replacement that's needed, all right? Man, dumb hip. What's that all about? You know, we got our parts of our bodies that, that we understand that when one part of our body is in pain, the rest of the part of the body has to make up for that. And the rest of the parts of the body come along and, and make it so that that happens. And so we, we understand what that means. And I thought, how could I illustrate this to you? Because Jesus is the head of the church. He's the source for the church. He, he birthed the church. He, he died to, to start the church. And so here's... Christ is the head, he's the source of the body, which is the church. So I thought, a visual. Okay, so I stand up here. Do I lose my back? Oh, there we go. Okay, good. Because I got so much more to say. All right, so, <laughs> so I stand up here, and I start doing this. 
And you're all thinking, what? That's dumb. That's like, dumb. Probably going to have bruises tomorrow. Okay. But you get it? You get it? You're the body of Christ. And if we choose, if we choose to bite and devour each other, it's like, you know, if I choose not to get along with a brother or sister of Christ, it's like punching myself in the arm. If I choose not to have relationships that are strong because of the source, the head, the one who's holding everything together, if I choose to take one of his children and hold something against that child, that's like hitting the body of Christ. And it's awful when it happens in marriages. It's awful when it happens between parents and kids. It's awful when it happens between friends. It's awful. And it's because we're not being the body. And Christ is supreme over that. So as we understand who Christ is, as we allow him to be the source of what's happening in our lives, all of a sudden we stop doing that stuff. And this body gets reconciled. Because he's from the beginning. He's the founder of the church. And he's the firstborn from among the dead. I love that. He is the initiator of a future resurrection and a future reconciliation that's going to happen. It's this already not yet aspect of our salvation. You know, and that's the tension we live in. Jesus lives in you, and you've got that already, but we live in an imperfect world. And one day it'll all be reconciled, and that's the not yet, that's the hope we're holding on to. It's that already not yet tension constantly we see. But he's the firstborn from among the, the dead because he's the beginning of the renewal of all things. Before Jesus rose from the dead, resurrection was a distant hope. And it was a distant hope that had no basis or no foundation that we could see apparently. But when Jesus came and rose from the dead, it was absolutely certain and absolutely sure that death had been defeated and that sin no longer had a sting and that our sins were atoned for and that all creation would be reconciled and made new. And Christ has the supremacy among all people over all things. So do you see your role in the church differently by recognizing Christ as the head? Okay, so I need my hand to pick up this book. All right, so my mind says, pick up the book to my hand. And my hand says, you know what? I got other things I'd like to do. Okay, and there sits the book and the hand won't go get the book. Right? Christ is the head. What's he telling you to do? Are you doing what he's telling you to do? Or are you doing what you want? And see, the church doesn't grow. It doesn't bear fruit. The gospel doesn't spread if we're not all doing the part that the head's telling us to do. Amen? Amen. All right, so, one, Christ is supreme over creation. Two, Christ is supreme over the church. Three, Christ is supreme over the chaos. Amen? I am so glad. God was pleased to have his fullness dwell in him. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. God was pleased to have his fullness dwelt in him. That's a confusing thing for us. Let me give you a different, a different read on that that might help you understand. God, in all his fullness, has chosen to dwell in Christ. 
God, in all his fullness, has chosen to dwell in Christ. That's powerful. Flip the page over, chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And you have been given fullness in Christ, who's the head over every power and authority. You have been given fullness in Christ. Christ is the fullness of God, and he's in you, so you have the fullness of Christ in you. It's like, wow, I can get over the chaos because I've got Christ in me. Because he's supreme over all the chaos. And listen, the chaos is more than just the trouble that's going on in your life. Because when Adam and Eve chose to sin, it sent the entire creation into chaos. All of creation has been subjected to frustration, Romans 8, and is, is in decay because of sin. And entire creation is longing for the sons of God to be revealed so that it will no longer be subjected to the frustration because God, through Jesus, supreme overall, will be reconciling creation and making it new. And the chaos will be gone. Because God is supreme over that. Jesus is supreme over that. So, the context of the gospel message is not our benefit or our salvation. I don't know if you've picked this up yet. We've still got some copies. It's a hard book to read, but oh, is it good. The context of the gospel message is not our benefit or our salvation. The context of the gospel message is the supremacy of Christ and the glory of God. The story of good news is personal, but it's also cosmic. There's a personal aspect. If you've never met Jesus as your Savior, there's a personal aspect to that where you can trust him, repent of your sin, turn to him, and you can have a personal relationship with him. But it's cosmic as well. Because our sin has impacted the entire creation. And the entire creation must be restored. And that's what Paul is telling them, is the chaos that you are in, just the chaos that's going in all around you, Christ is supreme over that in the same way that Merle doesn't float up out of the building because Jesus is holding him down Jesus is supreme over this chaos amen so October 4th 1998 I'm reading a passage and all of a sudden this passage reads me and it's John 17 the prayer that Jesus prayed the night he was betrayed Father, the time has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to those you've given him. Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the one true God, Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. And later he says this, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. That night, scripture read me. And I began to weep as I realized this, that the night Jesus was betrayed and the night that he died, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for Chuck, who will believe in me 
because of their message. I pray that he would be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May Chuck also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Righteous Father, I want Chuck to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you've given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Listen. Christ, supreme over all creation. And he says, Guy, I want you to be with me where I am so I can show you my glory. Ed, I want you to be with me where I am so I can show you my glory. Shirley, I want you to be with me where I am. Deb, I want you to be with me where I am so I can show you my glory. Perry. Dave. Christ is enough for me. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. Lord Jesus, thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for Paul who wrote it for us. Thank you for us being able to read it. Jesus, speak into our lives. Help us have a right understanding of who you are that changes who we are. It's amazing, Lord, for me to think that you, as my king, would choose to die for me. I praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.